A little housekeeping for this sermon. Uh, I decided to cut off uh, verses 31 through 35 until next week. I actually think it it uh, is better suited to uh, consider as we consider the sinful woman who was forgiven in verses 36 through the end of the chapter. So I'll wait until next week for verses 31 through 35. Let's pray together. Father, as you have given me uh, this call to proclaim your word, I lean upon you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we look to our Lord Jesus Christ and entrust ourselves to him. We ask in his name. Amen. You know, if I could have fit it all on the church sign, I would have titled this sermon, Questions About John's Questions About Jesus, Answered by Jesus' Questions About John. That would have been the best title ever. You know, now that I've, I've gotten past that, I think that was the hardest part of this sermon. I'm starting to feel a, a lot more relaxed. I'm ready to go this morning. Because it's all easier than the title. I have been fa- fascinated by this, by this uh, passage of Scripture. There are three questions in this passage that have always puzzled me. And this week, in preparation for this sermon, I got a chance to wrestle with these questions. And so these three questions that I've wrestled with are as follows. One, how could John the Baptist have doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. And then number two, what does Jesus mean in verse 28 when he says that John the Baptist is the greatest man who had ever been born of a woman? And then number three is related to it. What does Jesus mean when he then says in the second half of verse 28 that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. I have good news for you, or maybe good news for me. I found answers to all three of these questions that satisfy me. Uh, I have arrived at cognitive rest. I'm eager to share my insights with you. I'd invite you to test my answers uh, to see if I am right but I am more eager for you to submit your faith and trust to the Lord Jesus Christ as we examine this portion of Scripture together. The first question raised in ver- is raised in verses 18 through 23. John the Baptist was hearing from his disciples about all the miracles that Jesus was doing and how the crowds were growing and expanding, following him from town to town. And how he was preaching a message of forgiveness of sins and love for your enemies. John could not square the ministry of Jesus with the message of judgment that God had given him to preach. Uh, Do you remember the fire and the brimstone from John's sermons uh, way back in Luke chapter 3? You know, I think we are pushing 40 sermons now in the, in the Gospel of Luke. 
so it's been a while since we were in chapter 3. So let me remind you uh, the content of John's preaching. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't know how good your your memory is, but you may remember that I started that sermon uh, preaching my own hell and fire and and brimstone and uh, being very accusatory in my comments right at the beginning to say, this is what it was like to sit under John the Baptist preaching. And it was killing me the whole time I was doing it. I couldn't wait to say, this is only, a, only an illustration. John expected the Messiah to have the same kind of ministry Uh, as John the Baptist did, only with more zeal and more action. John the Baptist promised the crowds that the Messiah had his winnowing fork in his hand in order to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he was going to burn with unquenchable fire. So when Jesus did not come in immediate and hot judgment... John was confused. John could not come back and ask Jesus personally why he was not being more aggressive, why he was not overthrowing the corrupt religious establishment embodied by the scribes and the Pharisees. Because remember, John had been thrown in jail. Uh, He had been thrown in jail for publicly criticizing Herod the Tetrarch for marrying his brother's wife. In fact, John was looking at a possible death sentence. And being in jail may have darkened John's outlook on his future. And it may have have caused his faith to weaken. And so all he could do was send his disciples to Jesus to question him. Verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Apparently they were going and visiting while he was still in prison. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... I'm sorry, I'll stop right there. I believe that John's question arose mainly because he had misplaced expectations. John expected the Messiah to be this great military figure who would, just, who would bring God's judgment on all of his enemies. And so in John's mind, the corrupt religious establishment, the crooked Jewish politicians, even the oppressive Roman government would come under the wrath and judgment of the Messiah. John expected it to happen immediately. He had told the people in his sermons that even now the axe was laid to the root of the trees. You know, expectations have a lot of power over us. Expectations can drive our beliefs and our behaviors. When expectations, however, are wrong 
or are misplaced, they can have disastrous consequences in our life. You know, in my pre-marriage counseling, I hand out an expectations questionnaire at the end of the first session so that the couple can can take a questionnaire home each and not work on them together, but work on them separately and then bring them back uh, to me the next session. You know, if a couple enters into marriage while holding widely varying expectations, it's a recipe for hardship and many arguments. You know, what do we call... The, the space between high expectations and reality. What do we call this space? We call it discontent. Or maybe, in John the Baptist's case, disillusionment. The space... Uh, I'm sorry, the, I think the stress that uh, being in jail and the, then the misplaced expectations led John to a strong temptation to be disillusioned with Jesus. So he sent his disciples, sent them to Jesus. Are you the one, or should we expect another? Notice Jesus' answer to John's question in verses 21 through 23. In that hour, uh, Jesus healed many peoples of many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me." John had misplaced expectations because he believed that Jesus was going to bring about a physical kingdom here on earth immediately. So Jesus is telling John's disciples to go back and tell John, No, John, you're mistaken. Instead of a physical kingdom, Jesus was bringing a spiritual kingdom. Jesus came here to seek and to save sinners. Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Jesus came to redeem spiritually rebellious human beings in order that they might become children of the living God. Jesus came to live a righteous life, to die a sacrificial death on the cross, that we might live eternally with God. Jesus will certainly bring judgment on the world. But first, He came to save it. And that's Jesus' point to John the Baptist. You know, I want to use John's misplaced expectations as a warning for us. John expected Jesus to be this military leader who would bring about a righteous political kingdom. If we place all our trust in political kingdoms, in political power, then we are bound to run into the same sort of misplaced expectations that John the Baptist fell into. Jesus' kingdom 
is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus does not promise us a strong nation or a strong economy or even a strong conservative president. I'm thankful for the president. I think the impeachment is shameful and baseless. But what if the president is removed from office next, week, next month? Will Christ's kingdom be any weaker? Of course not. Are the articles of impeachment more powerful than the will of Christ? If the president is removed? Of course not. So I want to remind you. Don't put your hope in political power or in politicians. Even if your politician is a favorite of yours and has done many wonderful things. Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now related to this point, I also want to warn you against thinking that Christ's kingdom should be focused on fixing all of society's ills. Christ's kingdom is focused on proclaiming the gospel and shepherding God's flock because Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The church is a very powerful force in society, but its influence is only incidental as people are converted from unbelief to faith, uh, to unbelief to faith in Christ, as they start living godly lives and start evangelizing their neighbors. The reason I say this is there are many in our younger generation that are disillusioned with the church, disillusioned with Christ, because they feel the church is not doing more to stand on the front lines for social justice. And I want to remind them, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. We need to move on to the next two questions. Verses 24 through 28. Jesus turned from the disciples of John the Baptist, and he turned to the crowds, and he began asking them all these series of questions. And so he began... Uh, by asking them who they thought John to be. And so we'll find the answer to my second question as we examine Jesus' questions to the crowd that had gathered before him. Remember my question, my second question. What does Jesus mean in verse 28 when he says that John the Baptist is the greatest man who had ever been born of a woman? So I'm seeking to answer that. Answer that question by looking at Jesus' questions to the crowd about John. The first reason for John's greatness, I believe, is his character. And I think this is revealed in verses 24 and 25. Uh, I'll read it. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. 
So Jesus is asking these series of questions. What were you expecting to hear when you went out into that harsh wilderness to listen to John's preaching? What were you expecting to hear? Were you expecting to hear a weakling? Did you expect to find someone who was blown about like a reed in the wind by every wind of public opinion? Did you expect to find someone wearing delicate and refined clothing? Of course, the the implied answer is no. They expected to find a bold, plain-spoken, unmovable prophet of God calling people to flee from the wrath of God. John was utterly despised by the corrupt religious establishment. He hated by the crooked politicians. But he did not yield to them for one moment. It was his fearless rebuke of Herod the Tetrarch that landed him in prison, and he ended up being beheaded as a result. I am no John the Baptist, and I pray that God would encourage my courage and boldness in the pulpit. But I must point out one great weakness in the American pulpits that I've noticed. Preachers are forgetting their, their prophetic responsibility and replacing it by trying to be a life coach uh, in their preaching. In most sermons, it's common to hear preachers share their feelings uh, to project an image of sensitivity or trying, as one person put it, to channel their inner Oprah. Uh, I hope I'm sensitive. Mandy, am I sensitive? Uh, I, I try to be. But there are these preachers. Well, let me, let me just... Preachers are called to proclaim Jesus Christ are called by God to call sinners to faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, boldly, fearlessly, to be immovable. And I continually tremble that I lack sufficient boldness to do that as well as God would expect. John's greatness was due to his faithfulness in God and his unwavering call for sinners to prepare to receive the Messiah. But there's a second aspect to his greatness that Jesus identifies in the next two verses, in verses 26 and 27. Jesus continues, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Christ regarded the prophets of God as the greatest men who ever lived. Hebrews 11 verses 36 through 38 gives God's assessment of these prophets. And basically, the assessment when summarized down was the world wasn't, wasn't worthy of them. Listen to Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38 as uh, the writer describes the life of a prophet. He says, Some suffered mog- mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, 
destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And so, God says, the world wasn't worthy of them. And John the Baptist was the closest, or was the greatest prophet because he was the one who was closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who was assigned to proclaim that Jesus, the Messiah, had arrived on the scene. In other words, John's greatness was not derived only from his faithful character of preaching the gospel boldly, but it was also because of his role as the forerunner of Christ. John's greatness was derived from the greatness of Christ. Jewish society would not regard John as great. But Christ measures greatness differently, doesn't he? And so, we've looked at John's greatness. And then the third question is raised by what Jesus says in the second half of verse 28, where Jesus says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. So John was the greatest person ever born of a woman up to that time, excluding Jesus. But now everyone who follows him as citizens of the kingdom of God are greater than him. How can that be? Well, as I've said several times as we've moved through the the gospel of Luke, Jesus is the king of hyperbole. It's a true statement. But Jesus is using overstatement to drive the, the point home. Like Jesus earlier in Luke chapter 6, you've got to take that log out of your eye to be able to help someone else take the splinter out of their eye. Or in Matthew chapter 5, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Gouge out your eye and throw it away if it causes you to sin driving home the seriousness of what he is saying. Jesus is saying that we, we, me, you, who are in Christ, are greater than John the Baptist. He is saying that. But it really drives the point home, doesn't it? To hearing. He's saying that... To enter into the kingdom of God is more important to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. He's saying that it's more important for, to participate in the kingdom of God than to point forward to it. Jesus is saying it's more important to be on, the, on this side of the resurrection of Christ, on this side of the outpouring of the Spirit, than on John's side. If you belong to Christ, no matter how weak you are in your faith, no matter how young you are in your faith, no matter how young you are in your age, if you belong to Christ, you are greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is saying here. Does that encourage you? 
It should. That's why Jesus said it. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Who are the crowds? The crowds were poor. They were illiterate. They were outcast in society. Listen again to verse 29, because you may have missed it the first time. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. In other words, these crowds that were following Jesus, they were a motley crew. The tax collectors, they were, out, they were the outcast of outcasts. Because they were taking money away from the people and giving it to the Roman government. And Jesus is saying to the crowds, all of you who belong to Jesus, even you tax collectors, you're greater than John the Baptist. Those who were told that they were nothings and zeros all their life They were considered great by King Jesus. But self-important, who defined greatness by society standards of greatness, felt it beneath them to submit to John's baptism or to humble themselves to trust in Christ. They rejected Christ's call to greatness in God's kingdom. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees... And the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Self-righteousness, the accumulation of wealth, notoriety. These are the things that the world sees as a standard of greatness. In this age of social media followers, how many followers can I get? How many likes can I get? In this age of athletes as role models, this age of movie stars as the spokespeople for ethics and morality in our society, how should we define true greatness? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourself and entrust yourself to Him. Derive your greatness from he who is the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as James chapter 4 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you as we pray together. Lord Jesus, it stuns us and it humbles us to think that you would so think of us that you would say to us that we are greater than even John the Baptist. Lord, we are humbled that in the book of Hebrews, you, are, you say that you are not ashamed to call us your brothers. Lord, we are thankful that you have loved us. We confess openly that we are sinners, unworthy of your love, unworthy of any greatness. 
much less a greatness that compares um, to to John the Baptist and even above his own greatness. Lord, we do humble ourselves. I pray that if, if there are any who are downcast, who belong to the Lord Jesus this morning, that you would lift them up, that you would raise up their spirits, raise up their soul, remembering that they are seated with Christ at your right hand, that their citizenship is in heaven, that it's not here on earth, even though we go through the struggles here on earth. Glory awaits us. And Lord, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring them to yourself. Lord, for those who find their greatness in their own standards, look to themselves as great apart from the Lord Jesus, humble them, I pray, and be gracious. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.